Hi, listeners. We're pausing the show for just a moment to let you know that nominations for the fourth annual Project Fibonacci STEAM Leadership Conference, taking place July 28th through August 3rd, 2019, are now open. The Project Fibonacci STEAM Leadership Conference is a one-week summer event for students entering 10th grade in high school through their junior year of college, where they'll get hands-on workshops with some of the brightest lights in the STEM and art fields, taking part in team-based, project-based learning with fellow scholars from all over the country. Space is limited, so educators, nominate your promising students now to be a STEAM scholar this summer and help them move forward full STEAM ahead. For more information and to sign up, go to projectfibonacci.org. And now, back to the show. Our next question, have you ever negotiated your salary? Go to Christy. Okay. Um, This is a great question, and it's so important. And no, I did not negotiate my first salary. And to this day, I I regret it. And I speak to um, what some of the other panelists were saying. That is the foundation of your pay grade. So that impacts your retirement it's exponentially um, impactful, so it's really important. And when you're young, I think I was 26, um, coming up here to Utica and getting interviewed um, for my first teaching job and was hired and they said the pay is this number and I said, okay. And uh, I later found out that my male cohort with the same education, went to the same college as me, graduated exactly in the same year. and we were designing the program together, was paid 6000 more than me because he negotiated. And so there's always money. That's the thing. And um, I just wanted to kind of say something about negotiation. Uh, you have to understand that everyone negotiates, and that's a hard hurdle for us to get over. We just assume that it, everything is set um, and that no one will pay you more than you ask. And that's kind of a funny one. Like, of course, no one's going to pay you more than you ask for, right? So um, you've got to ask. Um, There's more money usually, most likely. Uh, Let them name the first number. That puts you in a position uh, to negotiate. Um, Separate your enthusiasm for that job opportunity from logistically what it will take. Let's say it's across the country, they're not going to cover any moving. You know, there's other things to consider. You're not going to have your family support. Other things to consider. So really crunch those numbers, not just money-wise, but for your personal sanity, your sleep. (laughs) Uh, And then if they say no, if you're negotiating and they say no, ask them if you can revisit it in six months. I thought that was like an eye-opener to me. For some reason, I heard that up, um, the other day on television, and I was like, wow, I, what happens if they say no, if you're trying to negotiate? And it's like we will take it internally, you know, like, oh, gosh, I shouldn't have done that. But no, if they say no, say, oh, well, is it possible to revisit that in six months? And I thought that was excellent. I know it just seems like common sense. It's so, but I just wanted to say that out loud because I really, um, this is my, like, question I was like wanting to focus on most. <laughs> um, so uh, again, I'm kind of referencing Jean um, Chansky because I just thought her information was really good. She has a new uh, book out that I'm going to pick up, but um, Women with Money. And she said that in your 20s, which you guys, it's your focus, um, 57% of men will negotiate their first job. of women will negotiate their first job. So let's change those numbers and, or definitely be the 7% that do, because that's really important. 
Um, I never thought that I would be almost 20 years into my career at Mohawk Valley Community College. I thought I would probably, as an art uh, focus, be moving around from job to job and, and reinventing myself several times. So it's, it's a wonderful, I'm completely grateful. Um, but that, <laughs> not negotiating in those first years, that 6000 now I can almost count mathematically how much that's cost me. And it kind of hurts at this point. Um, and uh, get a number in your mind of what you're worth. If you don't get it, ask um, you know, if, if you can revisit it, like I said before. Um, and I just wanted to, to say a couple more points, but... Um, so this, the, your job application, it might not say that salary is negotiable, um, but I think to talk to HR, it's becoming um, more common for the job to state that. And they did find that when a job states that, women will be willing to negotiate. So if you end up in HR or writing an ad for um, a job application in your future, make sure you put that in there that it is negotiable because that will also tip the skills for women too. Um, uh, and, and often women uh, don't do it, be, but men do because they view it as ambitious. Um, so they don't ask permission to do it. I think it's important that you view it um, as, as ambitious as well. Um, and then as you get into your 30s, it, uh, if you can save 15% of your income, that can help you move up uh, and have a, a good retirement. So that's something to consider as you get older. Um, but that's, that's mainly what I wanted to say about negotiation. I think that it's crucial, and um, I'm an example of someone who didn't negotiate, and so it's forefront in my mind, so I just wanted to like have the cards and put some numbers out there, but um, please have the courage like to do that. It's really important. And on top of your salary alone, think about other things like vacation time. So mm -hmm. say they're not going to like, okay, our cap is this price, well, if you're only going to pay me this much, can I get more vacation, can I have more sick time or personal time? There's other things that you can pick and choose that will help your well-being if you're not going to get the money as well. Our next question is, do you think there is still a glass ceiling? Let's start with Della. I'm going to stand for two reasons. I have been sitting a long time. <laughs> um, being on a DJ, so I'm sitting and so my students can see me. Uh, yes, I actually do think there's a glass ceiling, but I also think that we're breaking it every day just by looking in this room. Uh, we had, I don't know if anybody knows anything about the Air Force. Uh, we have, it's called the Thunderbirds. They're the premier team, and it wasn't until 2006 that they had the first female Thunderbird pilot. And then in 2007, they had the second female Thunderbird pilot, who actually was from Rome, New York. And I'm proud to call her my sister. And I'm not really sure if they've had any since then. But yes, there is a glass ceiling, but it's cracking. And these ladies sitting here have created that crack. And I see people out here that are going to continue to create that crack. Thank you. And uh, Judge Clark? Yes, there is a glass ceiling. And women have to recognize that and approach their careers with that in mind. So um, don't let anyone pigeonhole you into something. Um, dream big and, and be, you know, when I was a prosecutor, you know, my colleagues that were men were called, uh, oh, tough, 
Oh, he, he's a tough prosecutor. And I, I won't say the word, but what I was called, okay, but starts with a B. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that when women are assertive and aggressive, we get, you know, a bad outlook or a bad name, and you, you can't do that. Uh, I would, I'm sorry? Or you're bossy. Yeah, or bossy or whatever. So, um, you know, because they, they, they want to label us and pigeonhole us. So, um, but the best thing you can do is prepare yourself and be qualified and have a great education because that's the one thing that they can't take away. And if you are well educated and if you've done well in school, you will shine. You will have your moment. That's what I relied back on when I ran for office because, you know, that was the only thing that was objective that I could say, well, I've done this and I did that and I got this award or whatever it was. And they're going to compare you to your male counterpart. So if you excel in school like, like the doctor did and went to Harvard, you know, they can't ignore that. Or the uh, Bucknell degree, I mean, you can't ignore those things. So your education is so important. And, and you know, we're smarter and better students, so that should be no problem. And I'll end with that. I think I thought the B word was beautiful. Oh, <laughs> I wish. There you go. <laughs> Have you ever experienced resistance when you're leading men? We'll start with Della. So in the Air Force, usually everybody's treated equal. I was in a, a male-dominated field, which was the technology side, uh, communications. Um, the resistance would be, and maybe some of this has happened to you guys, we'd be sitting in a staff meeting. They would have a problem. I'd raise my hand and give them a solution, and usually I was the only female there, and they were like, no, no, that's never gonna work. <laughs> I'm like, okay. But if it was planning a picnic, then it was like, okay, Don, what do you wanna do? <laughs> so right. So this one particular time, and Ladies, let me tell you, we cannot, we were talking about the glass ceiling, and I don't know if any of you, did, raise your hand if you're not really sure what that terminology is. The glass ceiling, I, and help me, yeah, no. is if you were to take this ceiling, all right, and it's glass, you can see through glass. We're the ladies, we're down here. The men are up there on top. We can look and see them, but we can't elevate up to that level. So that's when we talk about breaking the glass ceiling. Um, so anyway, teacher and he's coming up. Yeah, well said. Well said. Well said. Oh, the meeting. Oh, and so the meeting, I was talking to another one of um, the gentlemen, and he's like, you know what? They do that to you all the time, and a lot of times, that's where I was going. It takes men to help pull us up through that glass ceiling. They have to recognize that there is discrimination, or we're not getting treated equal. And those men, by the way, were raised by great mothers. And you can tell. Um, so he said to me, he goes, he does that to you all the time. I don't know if he knows he's doing it, but every time you'll give a good technical answer, and he's just like, no, it doesn't work. And somebody else in the room will give the same answer, almost verbatim, and it was like, oh, that's a great idea. So one day we decided to, he decided to do something. So question, I answered it. He's like, nope, nope, that's not going to work. Three people later, gives the same thing. He's like, oh yeah, that's great. 
And he looked at him and he goes, well, why wasn't it great like five minutes ago when Della said it? And he's like, she didn't say that. And he recorded it and he goes, yes, she did. Oh, I love it. So, Um, just again. Um, have you ever experienced resistance when oh, you were leading men? Yes. So um, when I was first assistant district attorney, um, you know, we had like 25 prosecutors and, you know, um, I was the first woman to ever hold that position and you're dealing with law enforcement and you're dealing with other, your fellow prosecutors and, uh, I had a lot of the same experiences as Della did. You know, they, there was resistance to my ideas, uh, and um, so I learned a technique to try to plant my ideas through the people I was supervising to get them to, you know, uh, make the suggestions so that they're our other colleagues in the office would embrace them. And so that was just a little kind of a trick I used to try to, to get the job done and to lead the office, but yet do it in a very subtle way so that I wouldn't be intimidating or whatever. Just because I was a woman, they didn't want to hear it from me, but they would hear it from, their, uh, from other men in the office. So. And uh, Dr. Maria? Oh. Um, so yes, and this comes back to the uh, glass ceiling question, and I don't know we're breaking it, I think we're raising it, um, and I think there's a difference because um, going through the academic trajectory, I didn't feel a glass ceiling to be honest. I knew that my, my predecessors had fought for me, there were professors who were in the field, first women, etc. I think a lot of what's happening at the Air Force. And so you get to a certain level, and it's all okay. And that level is being pushed up constantly. So we're pushing the, the, the envelope all the time. And so I didn't feel that until I was um, transitioning to associate professor, um, where I found out that my predecessor, my, or my colleague, we started at the same time. He had, um, I think, lesser credentials than I did, to be quite frank. Um, was already being put up for promotion, but then to the biggest rub was I found out he was making fifty thousand oh dollars more than I was, and so I did approach that and I did actually fight that. Um, and so you do have to have the credentials. You need to know to fight it, and you need to go forward and actually plead a cause for your case. I think it's really important that you do that. You can't let that happen, and it's not conscious bias, it's unconscious bias. And these are the things I want to defer to something Obama's staff did when he was in office. The women in his cabinet, I guess, had made a decision that when a woman would raise an issue, which was a lot was happening where she would say something, it was brilliant, ignored, until the guy next to her said the exact same thing, and he would get all the credit. So what they started doing and this is about pu pulling other women up, which is so very important, is when a woman would say something that was a brilliant idea, the next woman would say, and as Anne just said, you know, mm -hmm. and would reinforce 
all of the positive things that women are bringing to the table. I highly recommend you read Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. It is a transformative book, actually, with regards to what it takes to actually be a leader, because you need a seat at the table. So many times at conferences and meetings that I go to, there's a huge conference table, and there are peripheral seats around the side. The women take the seats around the periphery, and the men sit at the table. Don't allow that to happen anymore. You need a seat at the table, and preferably not one next to the coffee, because the other thing that happens is you get asked to go get the coffee. And so when that happened to me once, I said, well, um, that's not my job. I think we should have the gentleman who's sitting right next to it bring you the, the coffee. I, I think it's important that your role as a woman not be determined based on your sex. It needs to be based on your skill set and what you're bringing to the table. So keep an active voice is what I would say um, to that question. And the next question, what's one key leadership lesson you've learned along the way? We'll start with Sonia. So I've led in a variety of roles. I've led contractor teams, I've led government teams, but only in my most recent position have I been able to lead at kind of the enterprise level. Um, and so as somebody who was more of a performer before, um, I would see trends come and go, especially in IT. There's all sorts of faddish things out there and leadership gets really excited and they think it will solve all their problems and people at the technical level that maybe have some of that technical knowledge to know some of the shortcomings are really skeptical of it. Um, but once you're at the enterprise level, you can really take advantage of these trends. Um, to drive change. And so maybe you put your own particular spin on things. Um, you know, for instance, there's been in IT, if you work in IT, there's been a lot of things about DevOps. You know, everything is DevOps, everything's DevSecOps, everyone's in love with it. Um, but that's, in the military, we have a lot of bureaucracy to overcome. And sometimes the bureaucracy gets in the way of actually getting our tasks accomplished. Sometimes the rules are, quite frankly, ridiculous. Um, so we can take advantage of something like DevOps, which um, involves uh, getting technology to the warfighter faster. We can take advantage of that to try to change policy and change procedure um, so that we can do a better job. So when you're a leader, it's up to you to anticipate trends, to know those trends, and then you know even if maybe the trends are more of a fad, you can still take advantage of those trends to really drive change. So that's my advice to you. And uh, I'll repeat the question. Okay. <laughs> What's one key leadership lesson you've learned along the way? Lead by example. Just be yourself, be motivated, be that person that you you would want to follow. So if you just lead by example. Great answer right there. Next question. What is your advice to share with young women entering a male-dominated profession? Let's start with Linda. Well, seeing as how I'm the very first woman president of a builders association, I am surrounded by men. <laughs> Um, ironically, I'm treated better by them than I am the women, which is leading back to one of my points earlier. Uh, I think one of the greatest compliments I get is that I'm considered one of the boys. Not that I want to be a boy, they obviously know I'm not, but they see me at the same level because I command that respect, they respect what I do, and actually they've been some of the ones who've come to me and said, you know, you need to charge more, you're worth more than that. Um, 
So it's definitely a unique kind of circumstance, but I'm also treated like a lady in this male-dominated field. They buy me a drink at the bar, and I don't have an issue with that. If they want to buy me dinner as a thank you for leading them through a project, I'm okay with that. It's all right to have all those different parts of your personality. There's no one way to be a woman. There's no one way to be a man. So embrace all of that. And uh, Judge Clark? Um, when I first became elected judge, uh, I went to a meeting and I was the only woman there and um, I'm not the type of person that gets intimidated very easily, but I was intimidated at that meeting for the first time and I didn't say anything. I didn't offer anything. I didn't you know, even though I had ideas and I wanted to say things, I didn't. Um, I didn't, I was afraid of being judged. I was afraid of saying something that was silly or didn't, wasn't weighty enough or wasn't correct. And uh, on the way home, driving home from Syracuse, I beat myself up in the car all the way home saying, you know, you had better ideas, you should have, reached out, you should have uh, projected, you should have raised your hand, you should have gotten involved. I can't believe you didn't do that. I mean, I literally was talking to myself coming home on the throughway. And so um, lesson learned there was from then on, um, I, I was empowered to do that. And I think that, um, but it can be intimidating. And I think if you don't observe that and you don't know that, it's, it's wrong, okay? You have to be willing to, like you said, be yourself. And um, I'm always one that contributes and always one that would speak out, but um, that was the last uh, meeting that I was silent at. And, uh, but I, I really was disappointed with myself for just like sitting there and actually I felt like not worthy. You know, like I wasn't up to their level. And that's a, it, it was a terrible, feeling even so I reminded myself that I was and then then it was okay but um, so I'm giving you the benefit of that don't let that happen you know you know your self-worth and be willing to project and be willing to be involved and raise your hand and be involved I also think um, how you present yourself as well not what you wear and stuff but your posture you should walk in not all slumped and you know feeling intimidated, you should walk in with confidence, your shoulders back, you know, your, stand, your head up high, that you, you've got this. And especially in a male dominant area, they will respect you for walking in with some kind of confidence into any type of meeting or any type of work situation. Our next uh, question, what are some strategies that can help women achieve a more prominent role in their organization? We'll start with Zelda. So I'm not really sure, but I think men, or it was a man that, that invented pants because they wore it first. So in the Air Force, we have women's pants and we have men's pants, <laughs> all right? So it's, does anybody wear a belt with their pants? Okay. Do you know which way you, you put the belt in? Can they get matched whatever way the buttonhole is? Okay, but if you look really carefully, women's pants, are you lead it from the right. And men's pants, you start it from the left. So I always tell my female cadets when they can't remember which way to put the belt on, remember, they're laughing. Women are always right. <laughs> I love it. So we go in from the right. 
And now I forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> strategies that can help them achieve a more prominent role in the organization. Okay. Raise your hand if you have little brothers. Do you negotiate, manipulate, outwit your little brothers to your parents? Utilize that skill when you get older. Work smarter, not harder. That's a great Very good. Um, and Dr. Maria, what are some strategies that help women achieve a more prominent role in their organization? Um, so I, I use three words, really. Um, perseverance, persistence, and grit. Um, I think to be successful in any organization, you need those three things. And part of that is to continue, even when people try to knock you down, to keep fighting until you get what you want, and to develop that thick skin. It's so very important. Um, I'll be honest, I have very little tolerance for people crying in my office. Um, and it, it's not just women who do it. Actually, fewer women than men have cried in my office. Um, but I give them their tissue box, and I ask them to go outside, collect themselves, come up with a solution to the problem, and come back and discuss it. I think it's important when you, when you think about advancing in whatever it is you do, you need to be thinking about how do you approach it to finding a solution. Don't expect other people to solve your problems. Come up with some strategies that you present and put to the table. It's negotiable, everything's discussable, but you need to be able to be prepared to have a solution to the problem. You, you can't just complain, you have to resolve it. And to be a leader, you need to be somebody who's pushing. I always equate this to sort of which road do you decide to take when a fork comes up. You know, my dad used to tell me this. Are you going to take that fat road that everybody goes and travels along, or are you going to climb up that mountain and go to the other side? It's a shortcut, but it's a longer, harder way to get there. And I think the answer is you have to think about whether, whether you want to be somebody who takes the, the road well-traveled, follows, or do you want to be somebody who actually paves the road and leads? Um, and that's really kind of the, there are two types of people in the world. There are the, those people who decide they're going to be great workers, and then there are people who are going to decide to be great leaders. And you have to decide which one you want to be. All of you have the capacity to be a great leader, but you have to take the steps to do that. And our next question, what advice do you have for women aiming for leadership, leadership positions? We'll start with Catherine. So I am a woman engineer, okay? Engineering is very mathematical, it's problem solving, there's very specific approaches when you go through engineering school and how to do that. When you team problem solve, which engineers are also encouraged to do all the way through school, and, and I'm sure some of you experienced, you're all put on projects as a team. Um, women approach problems differently than men. They think differently through those problems. So the first thing I had to do is recognize that if I was on the team with all men, I'm gonna approach that solution different, that problem differently. To what you said, you may have had a great answer, but you got to that answer differently than the rest of the men in the room. And they may not necessarily, the light bulb may not go off on how you got from point A to point B because you approached it differently. It doesn't make it wrong. You just thought through the problem differently. Okay? We're all different. So recognize those differences and, and approach that. And I'm sorry, can you repeat what the um, What advice do you have for a woman aiming for a leadership position? Um, so I think 
I've also read a lot of studies that women make better managers. They're more nurturing. The minute I saw that, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna stop being sorry for not wanting to be a manager. Um, so I think you need to play to those skill sets and understand what they are. And you always need to be pushing for that. And, and don't cut yourself short. So I think those are just really important things. Learn to recognize that you may approach it differently, it doesn't make it wrong. And that you may have a skill set that could make you better in that position than a man. And, that's, and, and so emulate yourself to that point. Okay, and the same question for Jenna. What advice do you have for women aiming for leadership positions? I would say that a strong leader begins early in life, um, even when you're still in high school and you have your first job, whether it's working at a cafe or working in a library or wherever your first job is, take it seriously. This person obviously hired you to do this job because they thought that you would be good at it. Um, they believed in you and they want you to be the face of their company and they think that you would do a really good job. So when they ask you to do something and it's within your capabilities, do it with a smile and do it really good because know that they have confidence in you. And someone with that confidence in you will give you that opportunity to grow. And other workers around you will see that too and they will look up to you. I have someone on my team right now I just hired her last month and she has just blossomed. She wasn't hired as a leader, she's not a manager, but she has taken the initiative to do things on her own that I didn't really expect her to do. And everyone around her now asks her for advice, they ask her how to do things, and now we have offered her a leadership role. And she's so thankful for it. And I think it's her first leadership role in life. She's 20, 22. So she is just so grateful. And it feels good to allow someone that opportunity when they deserve it. So I would say work your hardest when you're young, and it will pay off in the long run. And our next question, think back 10 years. Did you envision this is where you would be? So with Dr. Maria. No. <laughs> um, I, as I said before, I started out wanting to be an archaeologist. Um, and actually in high school and college, um, I didn't think science was going to be where I landed. But I was naturally gifted, luckily, in doing math and science. And eventually, you know, you have to follow your talents too, but you have to also be true to yourself at some point and find what it is that's really passionate about. Um, what you want to become and the, the road is not always clear. I'm, I still don't know where I'm, I'm going. I kind of have a five, ten year plan but it's you know be willing to shift um, not knowing what that plan will transpire into um, and the other part of it is um, it's amazing who your role models and mentors are along the way. They actually do make a big difference in helping steer um, and guide where, where it is that you, your path will take you. Um, so be always open and receptive to hearing what people's advice is as you, as you go along your path. And uh, Jenna, same question. Uh, think back 10 years, you were 11. Definitely not. Uh, I was in fifth or sixth grade. Um, even through high school, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I loved art, I loved music, I didn't really like math, but I was okay at it. 
I felt like a well-rounded person. I just kind of liked it all. But I was also a little disappointed in myself because I didn't really have this really strong interest in something. I didn't have a goal of going right to college and majoring in something. And I was always, frankly, jealous of those kids that knew they wanted to be a lawyer, they knew they wanted to be a doctor, and they went to school and they did it, and that they never questioned it. So when I got into college, I was undecided. I went to three colleges in two years, and I probably changed my major about 10 times. Um, and I finally decided to take a break this past year, and that's when I opened up my shop. And I've honestly never been more thankful for it because I now know when I have the time to return to school, I can do it on my own time. I can do it part-time. I can continue working at my shop and get it growing. And now I know that I want it to be a business degree. So I feel like this opportunity has opened so many doors for me. And I think that for the rest of you, your career will evolve as you age and as you try out different jobs, you'll find one that you like. I'm the opposite of her. <laughs> Since I was five, knew right away what I, what I wanted to be. So that's complete opposite of, of everybody else. But either you, you know right away or you learn to know. And, and it's all based on experience too, of trying out different things. It doesn't hurt to try out a bunch of things uh, to obviously advance your career. So I'm going off script because we went through all the scripted ones, so whoever wants to answer can answer. Um, I went, I, I'm obviously from here and I, I came back here after college. What made you guys want to stay in the area? Oh. Ironically, I hadn't planned on staying in this area. Uh, when I graduated from college, it didn't matter that I was top of my class, the first honors graduate, all of that from that particular university. And the recession was in the South where I had planned on staying. So mom said, just move back home. If you have to flip burgers for a while, you'll find the job you want. And ironically, found the job that I wanted right here in Utica. So whoever thought I would just end up back home where I was and ended up creating the exact life that I wanted that I didn't know was available to me here in the Mohawk Valley. And it's given me a lot of really great opportunities that I wouldn't have had if I had moved somewhere else. My children have grown up with three great grandmothers and both sets of grandparents within 10 miles of our home and have great relationships with them. Um, something I never planned on, but it was a very attractive thing. And ironically, lots of times when my husband and I go to reunions for either high school or college, so many of our classmates say, oh, we wish we could live back here in the valley. There's a quality of life that's available here that you won't find other places. And don't think because of something that you might think of as a career option, oh, that'll never exist in the Mohawk Valley. Never say never. People come for the weather, too, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, anybody else, why did you decide to stay? So uh, I didn't exactly stay. So I, I moved, I went to school in Pennsylvania, got my first job outside of Philadelphia. And we lived outside Philadelphia for about 20 years. Um, I got engaged in the Adirondacks. I got married in the Adirondacks. I lugged my family home six times a year to Central New York. And eventually, we were looking for another house. My husband's, we were looking, we're looking, we're not finding anything that really fits the criteria we had. My husband's like, let's look where we drive all the time. I'm like, 
Why would I want to move back to that much snow? I can run in the winter outside without fighting the snow. He goes, no, there's not as much snow there anymore. The first year we moved back was as much snow as when I was in high school. And I was a ski instructor at Woods Valley. So I, it's not like I didn't embrace the snow. But we moved back. My kids now can be a ski instructor. And, and just one example, right? You may take for granted that you can go half an hour from here, spend like $35, maybe even 15 if you live in the town of Trenton, to go skiing for a night. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to go skiing outside Philadelphia, I drove two and a half hours, I spent $100 on a ticket, and I had to stay overnight because I drove so far to go skiing. And I did that with my spouse once. And I was a ski instructor. So when you talk about quality of life, there really is an enormous quality of life in this area. And, and I telecommuted for 20 years as well. I was a, it, probably somebody who championed that, and one of the first people that really made a career out of that. I remember I saw an MBCC thing, how to manage people to telecommute. I'm like, I looked at how old this person was and how long they've been working. I'm like, I've telecommuted longer than the person teaching the class has been employed. So I'm like, okay. But anyway, so please, please don't underestimate quality of life and, and the Mohawk Valley. So I'm a transplant here, so I can attest to um, Coming to an area where I had to look on the map to find out where Utica was, I had no idea. Um, and I travel um, pretty significantly. I probably travel internationally, nationally, every week. Um, but I love coming back here. Um, I used to live seven miles from uh, the medical school where I used to work in Boston. It would take me 45 minutes to drive there. Um, I love my commute, five minutes, six minutes if I get stopped by the one light. Um, and I absolutely love the quality of life. My husband and two children have seamlessly transitioned into this community. The, the thought that the, the thoughtful people who are here is something that you don't find in a large city. Um, the impact that you can have in your community already uh, being here in a year, I feel like I know so many wonderful people. It's not something you have in a big city. Um, and the 35 some odd people who have already moved here from other places equally feel the same way. So it's a wonderful community. You should really consider staying and coming back. After, uh, go, spread your wings, and come back. I wanted to answer this one too, if that's all right. Um, I, as an artist, um, was amazed moving up to this upstate New York town. Uh, we have a world-class museum that was designed by uh, Philip Johnson. And then I drive down the parkway every day to work uh, to Mohawk Valley Community College. And I pass some of the greatest bronze sculptures, um, especially American sculpt, uh, sculptor McMoney's piece, the Swan Memorial. It's a little boy paint, playing a uh, pan flute pipe. Uh, and I just stop at that light because I always get that light, and I just, I used to be like, oh, I've got to get to school, you know, and then I realized, wait, this is my opportunity every morning to spend a minute with this Macmoney sculpture, and I'm like, what other city on earth could I do that, except for, you know, Rome or Florence, so, um, and I became involved with Sculpture Space early on, and they bring 20 uh, artists, sculptors from all over the world into Utica for two-month rotation. So as a young person, um, when I was in my 20s and 30s here, 
um, there was kind of a gap in um, people my age in the, in the area. And uh, sculpture space was my lifeline. I would meet all these artists from coming from all over the world. And I thought, as a sculptor, this is an amazing opportunity. It just, it was really kismet for me. And um, the, it's very close to New York City, so I could still maintain my friendships, because that's where I moved up um, from. And then lastly, it is so affordable. And so I was able, as an artist, to purchase myself a home and have a studio outside my home. And I'm happy to say, I, after 15 years, I paid off my mortgage, so I own my own home. And as an artist, I, I mean, I never in my life ever expected that to happen. And that's because of the Mohawk Valley and its reasonable real estate prices. So yeah, please do go away, spread your wings, and then come back and populate our gorgeous city. What time? One more answer. Anybody? Want to play full it? Oh, it's okay. I'm also a transplant here. I, you know, I'm from Minnesota by way of North Carolina, and um, <laughs> wow. when I, yeah. So when uh, I ended up coming to New York um, to to the research lab, the first time I flew in, I thought it was going to be completely populated. I, I was, you know, but it's actually quite a lot like home in Minnesota. Um, I also, you know, you hear Minnesota nice, but the, but the people here are equally as nice. I mean, there might be more Italian food and maybe more statues of Virgin Mary, um, but, the, but the people are wonderful here. Um, in terms of having a family, uh, you know, the opportunities can't be beat, whether you're going on the Polar Express and meeting Santa Claus, or going to Crits Farms and doing some apple picking, or hiking up in the Adirondacks, or going uh, swimming in Lake Ontario. You know, there are tons of parks. Uh, the commute thing is enormous. I was just in San Antonio yesterday, you know, struggling through the traffic, and maybe the weather was beautiful, but yeah, you can't beat a five-minute commute. So I concur. This is a great place to raise a family, and we're very happy here. I'm, I'm surprised nobody said food. <laughs> well, I that's why not, she's not yeah. a starving artist. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this concludes our panelists. Can you give them a big round of applause? Once again, I need to thank all of the panelists who took part in that very special episode of Steamcast and the very first annual Women in Steam Congress put on by the Project Fibonacci Foundation Livestream Series. Steamcast is a production of the Project Fibonacci Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit educational organization whose mission is to introduce our youth to a culture of interdisciplinary STEAM learning, teaching them to become creative, independent leaders of community resurgence. You can learn more by going to projectfibonacci.org. Steamcast is written, produced, and hosted by me, Dan Kostelik. You can follow me on Twitter at Dan Kostelik. Technical support by Andrew Berger. The music in the show is by The Live and Breathe from the album Reet. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you listen to music. Please subscribe and rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or the podcatcher of your choice. And also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Facebook, we can be found at facebook.com slash projectfibonacci. And on Twitter... We're at Pro Fibonacci. That's P-R-O-F-I-B-O-N-A-C-C-I. Thanks for listening. And just remember, tomorrow, after this episode airs, April 2nd, is Pay Equality Day. The time of the year where women's pay finally matches what men made the year before. Keep that in mind as we keep moving forward. Full steam ahead.